Uh, we are in John chapter 6. I want to call your attention to it. This is where we left off last week. We'll pick up at verse 30, and we'll be able to do this. You'll be able to be dismissed at a reasonable time tonight, I promise you. So John chapter 6, we'll begin in verse 30. Look what it says. So they said to him, uh, that they are Jewish people. Uh, they have just been... Um, made privy to a marvelous miracle. There were, was a meager supply of food, and the Lord miraculously multiplied it so that 5,000 men, meaning if you added women and children, perhaps a crowd of 20,000 on the hills of the western side of the Sea of Galilee were fed, on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, were fed. That's the they we're speaking of here. They became quite interested in this unusual rabbi Jesus because he had a capacity to satisfy their interest in food. He filled their stomachs, and for that reason, uh, they were in hot pursuit of him. In fact, he called them on that. In fact, he brought to their attention that they, though they are following him, are doing so for the wrong reasons, and that they're after only physical bread when, in fact, he is in a position and he is willing to provide for them bread uh, unto eternal life. And, and so they asked him the question. They were quite interested. They said in the prayer verses, remember, they said, well, then what shall we do that we may work the works of God? What, 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 what shall we do to merit this bread, this, 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 this privilege of eternal life? What shall we do? And do you remember the Lord's answer? He said, it's in John 6, 29, he said, this is the work of God. This is the singular. They asked plural. What are the works? He, he narrowed it down to a singular work. He said, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. And so he reduced all religious inclinations, Jewish and otherwise, to this basis of access to God. He said, it's all about believing in me whom the Father has sent. That's what he left them with. And so they said uh, to him now, here in verse 30, what then do you do for a sign so that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? You see, in effect, he claimed to be their Messiah because this capacity to provide food was part of their messianic expectation. And so now they're saying, prove it, essentially. He's claiming messiahship, and they're saying, prove it. Remember, these are the very folks <laughs> who were the recipients of the miraculous supply of food that the Lord just provided them with. Nonetheless, they essentially say, substantiate your claims. Why should we be confident about you? Why should we put our trust in you? Prove it. Demonstrate something to us so that we could, we could believe. Now, at the time of this discussion, they're not on uh, the hillside, which today would be the Golan Heights. They're in a place called Capernaum, Kfarnachum. That's where they are at this point, just to give you an idea. And, and so this is, what, this is what they say. Do you, do you, think, do you think if the Lord here in response to their demand, do you think if he manifested more evidence 
of his messiahship. Do you think they would automatically believe? I mean, you hear the expression, seeing is believing, but that seems not to be the case here. I agree with you. I, I don't think they had a head problem. I think they, like we, had a heart problem. No, it wasn't more evidence that they needed. Uh, uh, their problem was much deeper than that. It was a, um, a hardness of heart. It was a blindness. It was an inability to submit to anyone else's lordship. And boy, you'd have to humble yourself. Remember, these are religious Jewish people who are being told all of their, we call them mitzvot, all of their good deeds, they're good, but they're inadequate in terms of winning God's favor and access into heaven. Now, you can do nothing, is what the Lord is saying, except Believe in what I've done for you. This would mean they'd have to humble themselves. You see what I mean? So uh, they're making it look like he has provided insufficient evidence of his Messiahship, but that's not it at all. They have deeply hardened and closed hearts, which leads me to the question, how does anyone, forget about them, how does anyone, how has anyone in here gotten saved? Because these Jewish people are no different than us, I mean, they're just an example of human nature. There's some prideful thing in us that keeps us from submitting to the evidence uh, of Jesus, the Messiah. We don't want to do that. And so how does anyone get saved? Our hearts being as closed and uh, dead spiritually as they are. Well, uh, the answer will become apparent in just a second. For now, I just want you to try to take in, as I am, the intense spiritual blindness that engulfed these people, even though they were there smack dab in the presence of the miracle worker, Jesus. Well, they go on in verse 31. They say, our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written, he gave them bread out of heaven to eat. Now, the mention of manna brings us back to the exodus journey of the Jewish people when they were liberated from bondage after 400 plus years in Egypt. Uh, God provided them with a food they'd not seen before called manna. And essentially, here's what they're saying to Jesus. They're saying, you, Rabbi, indeed provided us with food. But what Moses provided in the wilderness far exceeded what you've done. You, indeed, fed thousands of us, but Moses fed our entire nation. You fed us one meal, but he fed us for 40 years. That's essentially what they're saying. It's insulting, isn't it? Can you see how patient the Lord is? even with obnoxious and insulting people. And so they imply this. If you, Jesus, are the Messiah, then you ought to outdo Moses. That's what they're saying. And so Jesus said to them in verse 32, truly, truly, meaning listen up, amen, amen, is what he's saying there. This is important, he said. I say to you, <coughs> it is not Moses who has given you the, the bread out of heaven, but it's my father. So he corrects their first error. They were giving Moses way too much credit. Uh, today we call him Moshe Rabbeinu, Moses, the highest rabbi. He received the law on Mount Sinai, and therefore he's considered today to be the big gun rabbi. 
So Jewish people then and down to this very day accorded uh, or gave Moses way too much attention. And so here, they're, uh, they're attributing the manna in the wilderness to Moses, and Rabbi Jesus corrects their first error. It had nothing to do with Moses. He's just a vehicle. He's just a vessel. My father provided you with food in the wilderness. And then he addresses a second error in their thinking. God, through Moses, provided you with physical bread, which lasted for a while. But God, through me, says the Lord Jesus, is willing to provide, as the text says, the true bread out of heaven, which endures forever. The bread God the Father provided through Moses could sustain their life, but it could not impart life. But Jesus said, I'm the true bread. I can impart eternal life to you. That's essentially what he says. Four, verse 33, the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven. Jesus is this bread of God. He comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. This is very true of the Lord, isn't it? The kind of bread you and I need, way beyond that physical bread which satisfies and fills our stomachs, the kind of bread which enables us to live on eternally, that's an out-of-this-world kind of bread. You cannot find it here. And therefore, the bread of life, it's Jesus came to us. He, he came down. He condescended. This is a reference to his incarnation. Jesus, the preexistent deity, he had no beginning nor any end. He always was and will be. He who was came down because we couldn't extend ourselves uh, to where he is in order to obtain this bread of life, and so Jesus, the bread of life, came down. What God the Father did through Moses is just as an indication of his beneficent willingness to provide us with bread suitable for eternal life. And Jesus said, I am that bread. I, I came down in order to suffer and die for you that you might live forever. What an offer, isn't it? What an, what an offer, what a gift. And so how do they respond? Verse 34, they said to him, Lord, always give us this, this bread. Uh, meaning they didn't get it. They, they, they missed it entirely, didn't they? Uh, they were thinking about a continuous supply of the kind of bread that would satisfy their physical hunger. That's it. And so they seem not to hunger at all for the kind of bread Jesus is and was willing to become for them. They, they Flat out, they were not spiritually hungry. You have to be hungry, don't you, in order to be ready for the bread of life. How do you get... What does that hunger look like? Uh, maybe you can relate to this. Sometimes it's a sense of emptiness. Maybe, that's, maybe that characterizes you, even as we sit here tonight. I mean, you sense that something is just missing. I remember years ago in the military, counseling with a lady who had everything going for her, and yet she said, yes, I should be the most satisfied and happiest person on earth, but I feel that something is missing. That's a spiritual hunger. Or it may take uh, the form of a kind of a sense of purposelessness. You don't know what you're here for. That's a spiritual matter. You're just floating around. You get up, you go to bed, you work, boom, day in, day out. 
but you don't have a sense of purpose. Or, or sometimes spiritual hunger uh, takes the form of a sense of loneliness. This is an interesting kind of loneliness because it's a loneliness that cannot be resolved by a relationship. It's a soul lo- loneliness. So you could even be in a relationship and be experiencing this kind of loneliness. You just don't feel connected to anyone. You surely don't feel loved. You you feel out of it, even when in a group of people like, like this, loneliness. Sometimes this kind of spiritual hunger that is necessary to proceed consuming the bread of life is a sense of hopelessness, meaning you feel absolutely unprepared for your future. You don't know what the future holds. In fact, you fear it. You don't know what awaits you tomorrow and it really bothers you in fact if you're honest you would say I'm not in any wise ready for my death I'm not ready to die even I don't have questions pertaining to death and dying answered they're not resolved I'm hopeless sometimes the kind of spiritual hunger which must necessarily precede taking in Jesus is a a sense of fear, you, <laughs> something in you has persuaded you you're on the outs with God. You don't need some preacher to tell you that. You just know it's not right with you and he. You know somehow you're living in his world, but not rightly, and something in you has persuaded you one day you will give an account to him. And you know you don't have any defense. So you're fearful about all that. These are some of the diverse forms of spiritual hunger. Perhaps I've described you in some measure tonight. If you you sense them, uh, you're uncomfortable, but you might be in a good position because nobody comes to the table who isn't hungry. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. That's what he said, look, in verse 35. I am the bread of life. Uh, Seven times in this gospel of John, the Lord makes I am statements. Here is the first. I am the bread of, you know what he means? Uh, I I, I am the bread who provides life. And if you're feeling a kind of spiritual deadness, It really can't be resolved until you're motivated enough to sup at the right table and you don't come until you're spiritually hungry. I wonder if the God who you maybe have contempt for is really a God who loves you because he's not allowing you to be satisfied. Therefore, you're dissatisfied. You're lonely, you're empty, you feel hopeless, purposeless, and... Fearful. I wonder if a loving God is actually allowing you that experience so as to conjure up a kind of spiritual hunger so you can take up the great I am at his word. He said, I am the bread who gives life. Physical bread sustains life. Eat up. But Jesus is the bread who provides life. And he said, he who comes to me will not hunger. And he who believes will never thirst. There are those words, come 
and then believe, he says. To come to Jesus, don't make it complicated, is to believe in Jesus. To believe in Jesus, don't make it complicated, is to come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. That implies movement. Believe in Jesus. That implies trust. But, verse 36, the Lord says, I said to you that you have seen me. These are folks demanding more evidence. But you have seen me, says the bread of life, and and yet you do not believe. And so much for this notion, seeing is believing. They saw enough to believe, yet they withheld belief. What then does lead one, what enables one to believe in Jesus as Lord and Savior? Well, here's the answer. God does. One must be led by God into belief in Jesus, his son. I don't want to offend you too much, but if you're a saved one, you got saved by a savior. And you wouldn't even have sought the savior unless his father beforehand stirred up and gendered a kind of spiritual hunger in your life placed within you an interest in coming to Jesus, the bread of life. Nobody here takes credit for their own salvation. Would you dare do that? Everybody here thanks the Savior for it. In so doing, you are making a clear theological statement, and that is to say that God chose you. You alone could not have chosen him. I know this offends some here, but... Too bad. I think that's the biblical teaching. Look, verse 37. All, that means all people, all that the Father gives me. This is not, this is not my words. I'm just reading them. The Lord, Jesus is saying, all people, all that the Father gives me will come to me. That's how you come to Jesus. You have to be, here I'll use a word that'll cause some of you to stumble. You have to be elected ah, for salvation by God the Father, in order for you to come to Jesus, his son. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. Now, why does the Lord say that now in verse 37? Well, the implication is Jesus as Savior is failing miserably because people are refusing his salvation. Um. He's not seeing the numbers, Jonathan, you did. <laughs> He's seeing a rejection. Some might say uh, Jesus uh, is a failed savior. And he's making the point here. The obstinacy, the unbelief and hard-heartedness of man can never interfere with the plans and purposes of the almighty, sovereign God. The Lord Jesus says, my father will bring to me those who will be saved. There will be a harvest. I am not a failed sa savior at all. And, and I would like you to notice in verse 37 something I find interesting, maybe you will. In one verse, I think, I think it speaks of two things, both God choosing people and people choosing God. It speaks, in other words, both of divine election 
and human free will in one verse. Look, look. Uh, here's divine election. All that the Father gives me will come to me. That's divine election. But here is human free will. Same verse. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. So what you have in one verse is this notion of the Father electing to give some men and women to the Savior, but these men and women must come of their own free will. Now, what a bunch of gobbledygook I just shared with you. How can both of these be true? Which is it? Did God save you? Did he choose, here's the question. Did God choose you or did you choose God? I'm bringing this up because that question is dividing our churches. Did you know that to this very day? They're different camps. Sometimes they're called Calvinism versus Arminianism. In the Calvinistic camp, it answers the question, they would say, God chose us. The Arminian camp would say, no, you choose God. And so the way we're resolving the difficulty is dividing. Southern Baptist churches, did you know this, are dividing even as we sit here comfortably tonight, are dividing over this issue. So to our seminaries and so on and so forth. Because valid attempts at reconciling these two irreconcilable truths are being made, but they're being made by both sides wrongly. They're choosing sides. One side is choosing part A of verse 37, and the other side is emphasizing part B. But... but but both part A, divine election, and part B, human free will, are housed in the same verse. You can't choose sides. You can't have one or the other. They have to both go together. You, 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 now listen here. You cannot make these truths. You can't figure out how they work together. And, and neither can I. And neither can anyone. But God can and does. And that's why we came here tonight to worship him and not one another. The incomprehensible deity who is our father can harmonize these seemingly in unharmonizable truths. I can't even say it. Hey, remember one time, I, I think I gave you this illustration. I'll do it again, but I think it's a good one. Imagine... Uh, you're standing on the middle of, you're on railroad tracks, and there's two rails. Did I share this? I think I did. One time I did. Anyway, you're, st you're standing in the middle of two rails. Here's the two rails. Well, the, the rails are running parallel to one another. They're, they're never going to come together. But as you look at them in the distance, doesn't it appear that the rails are coming closer and closer together? The art, artists call that perspective. Yeah, as, as, as the lines go way out there, the rails, way out there, as far as your eye could see, it looks like they, they're beginning to get closer and closer together. I love that illustration. Imagine one rail. This is uh, God has his elect who are going to be saved. He, he chose those to be saved. Uh, 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 verse 37, part A, that's one rail. The other rail is those who come to Jesus, that looks like free will to me. That's the, that's the other rail. Well, I can't bring them together. But as these two parallel lines um, uh, vanish into the distance, uh, off into the heavenlies, in the infinite, incomprehensible, unlimited mind of Almighty God, somehow they merge together. He makes them work.
And so Paul says, how unsearchable are his judgments. How unfathomable are his ways. I'm so comfortable telling you, as a seminary trained guy, I have no idea how to bring these two competing truths together. I'm perfect. Now, the last time I said this, a guy sent an email berating me for having the audacity to stand up in front of you, and yet I can't even provide answers to questions such as this. Yeah, that's what he said, that guy. Unbelievable. A God fully comprehended is no God at all. I can't figure you out, let alone God. <laughs> it is no shame to say, oh, how unsearchable are your judgments. How unfathomable are your ways. What's the answer then to the question, did you choose God or did he choose you? The answer is yes. That's the answer. And I, I refuse to be put in one or the other of those camps. I don't want to be divided from others saved by the sovereignty of God and whose hearts somehow were moved to respond to the Savior's invitation, just like me. I don't want to be separated from those on the basis of a prideful unwillingness to admit we can't figure out how both of these truths work together, but they do. So these two truths, God elects those who will be saved and those who will be saved must choose to accept the Savior. These two apparently conflicting truths, they mean two things. Listen, one, first, if you are saved, you have no one to thank but God. He did it. If you are saved, you should sit back and you should just bask in the uh, sheer and utter joy and beneficence of the Savior. He saved you. Why? You were dead in your transgressions. You did not seek him. He sought you. The first part of verse 37 tells me that. Now, I don't have deep theological understanding, but I don't want that to rob me of the reality uh, of the fact that being saved means God chose to save me. That's the first thing. If you're saved, you have no one to thank but God. But here's the second thing. If you are not saved, you have no one to blame but yourself. You can't say, well, God didn't choose me. Nope, because there's the other side of the coin. <clears throat> Human free will and your response or lack thereof. If you're saved, you have no one to thank but God. If you're not saved, you will have no one to blame but yourself. The saved person will one day joyfully exclaim, I am in heaven because of God. And the lost person will one day 
shriek in terror, I am in hell because of me. Don't let these deep theological truths rob you of those obvious conclusions. If you are saved, you have no one to thank but God. If you are not saved, you have no one to blame but yourself. You cannot be saved without God working in you. I know that. But if you sense him working in you, you must respond. Hey, could I ask you a question? Do you sense him working in you tonight? Private question. Are you one of the spiritually hungry people I describe? Is that you? Could it be that that's God stirring you up? Making you aware of your apartness from him? Your, here our French speakers are here. Your, did I, tell me if I get this right. Your anomie, is that a word? Anomie, like moorlessness. Is that close? Uh, a French uh, existentialist came up with the word, so I'm stealing it. But anomie, moorlessness. You, 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 do you have this sense of being here but not belonging? I don't mean to the church. I mean to life. Do you, do you have this sense of soulish disconnect? I mean, you, you smile. How are you doing? Someone says, hey, I'm doing fine. You're not fine. Do you just, do you feel empty, empty? You can't attribute it to anything circumstantial. Look, we all feel hurt when a loved one passes, when you lose a job, when you get a cancer diagnosis. But I'm not talking about that. Have you ruled out all of those things and yet you're still left with a sense of disconnect, emptiness, purposelessness, identity crisis? And this resounding notion that there is the great beyond, but you don't have a clue what his name is, what he wants, how you get to him, what he expects of you. If that's you, do you mind me suggesting? I wonder if that's sovereign God doing that in you, stirring you up, enhancing the hunger so that you might be more willing to come to the table of salvation and sup. Jesus said, I, I am the bread. I am the bread of life. You know, uh, 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 being an American and growing up here in, in the United States, I heard of Jesus early on. I saw churches and saw people wearing crosses. I knew of Billy Graham and all the rest. Even my in my a closed Jewish community. I knew about all these things. Didn't matter to me. But then, I don't know, there just came a time years later when I was 23 years old and I felt hungry, empty, lonely, disconnected. And though I believed in the existence of God, that's as far as it went. No connection whatsoever it was a fearful enterprise I was sensing, even to think about being in the presence of God. I was hungry, hungry. And at the point of hunger, 
uh, the Lord introduced into my life a person just, just like us. And he told me about Jesus. In so many words, he told me about Jesus. Uh, these are the words I use to tell people about Jesus today. His were like it. I reduced mine to 40. It was something like, uh, hey, wait just a second. Hey, Benson, are you here? Benson, what are you doing over there? You're supposed to be. Hey, Benson, come here for a second. Folks, it's dangerous when you come to church because I call on you. Hey, Benson, I'm glad you're here. So I apologize later, but last week we were just talking, and Benson is a good guy, and he believes that God saves people, but he also believes that we have the privilege and the responsibility of telling people about the Savior, and that guy does. So he was telling me about a situation where that happened. Do you mind sharing that with the group? No, that's all right. Hey, go ahead. Go ahead. Um, I work downtown, uh, and on Wednesdays from 11 to 1 or so, uh, in front of the city hall, there is what they call a farmer's market. It's actually a number of uh, booths there. They sell uh, food, a, a wide variety of, of uh, different uh, ethnic uh, foods and uh, from all over the, the, the world. And uh, so I like to go down there and uh, see what they've got. And uh, one booth struck me because the sign behind it said, sinful. I thought, well, what is this? So I go over, and it's the uh, sinful bakery. They, they sell very good uh, cookies and, and sweets and all kinds of bakery items. And uh, so I thought, this is an opportunity this is an opportunity. I said, I, so I walked up, I introduced myself, and to, there was nobody else there, the young man selling the, uh, selling the stuff. And I said, you know, we're all sinful. I said, but I'm a sinner saved by grace. I said, you know, the greatest thing that ever happened to me. <laughs> so it was when I realized that God would save, would would forgive my sins. God sent his son to die on the cross in my place, atonement for my sin and for your sin. And he was raised from the dead after three days and he lives in heaven. And because he rose, I have eternal life. If I die today, I know I'm going to heaven. If you died today, would you know? And I got no response whatsoever. I asked him if, uh, he said, would you like to, to talk about it? Is there, is there any questions? No response. I said, okay. I said, I paid for my cookies. And I said, brother, I'll see you next week. So this afternoon I went back. And I, I uh, again, I was the only one that, at the booth, and I, I chatted with him for a minute or two, tried to engage him in conversation, reminded him that I had uh, you know, mentioned last week that I was that sinner saved by grace that came by, bought some cookies. I, again, just a pleasant, very pleasant fellow, not, uh, not angry with me at all, but not responding. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go back next week. 
And I'm going to see if, uh, if I can't just draw him out a little more. I'll get some response. Maybe somebody behind me will hear what I have to say. I don't know. But that's all we're going to do, Stuart. Uh, so that's what. Thank you, brother. God bless you, Benson. Thank you for. So there's the thing. Um, you, you know, you, you could say, but I don't know if that guy is one of the elect. That's right, you don't. And so it's like going out on a treasure hunt uh, and finding the ones in whose life God has already determined to work as unto salvation. And you get in on the blessing of sharing the gospel message and introducing them to the Savior, just as Benson did. Now, maybe that's you tonight. Maybe you sense God working in your life tonight. Well, then you owe it to yourself not to split too quickly. We'll stand, let's stand together. Uh, we're gonna depart, but for you, could we invite you to uh, stop by the Connection Center. It's right behind us. Just turn inward uh, from any aisle, and there'll be people there already waiting to just visit with you, speak to you perhaps about the spiritual hunger you may be aware of and about this interest you have in, uh, in coming to know more about the Lord Jesus. Or maybe there's just something on your mind you'd like to pray with someone. They would be glad to do that. Uh, with you now. Listen, folks, uh, all this theology is kind of deep. I got it. I got it. Uh, uh, but, but let's not be confused about the fact uh, all that we have and all that we are is due to the grace and mercy of our Savior, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. So on that note, let's just sing each other out of here. Let's sing, uh, I will sing of the mercies of the Lord forever. Let's sing that one. I will sing of the mercies of the Lord forever I will sing I will sing I will sing of the mercies of the Lord forever I will sing of the mercies of the Lord God bless you folks hope to see you Saturday if you're going to help us with the flags God bless you <laughs>